0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, we're in Nehemiah here this morning as we're continuing our way through Route 66, uh, Chapter 4. Um, If you have been a Christian for any length of time or if you have In particular, been in Christian ministry and leadership or service in Christian ministry for any length of time, you know that there is um, kind of a a constant companion that you might carry with you. And it's a companion called discouragement. Um, Discouragement can sometimes be kind of hard to shake in Christian ministry. Some of us have different personalities and temperaments, so some of us are more easily discouraged than others, but If you've been involved in Christian ministry for any length of time, you probably know what I'm talking about. Whether you're a pastor or a missionary, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, a ministry team leader, a crew staff person. Whether you're on faculty at Taylor or Ball State or in the public schools here in Muncie, Yorktown. Whether you're an elder or a deacon or the wife of an elder or a deacon. Whether you're a mother or a father, those also are ministry leaders. I think we all agree, as Paul said in Acts chapter 14, that it is through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. Christian ministry can be hard. And we're going to look here at a passage in Nehemiah 4 that highlights in particular how hard it can be. Uh, This man, Nehemiah, is coming under some pretty intense pressure. Um, Last week we looked at Ezra, the book right before Nehemiah. You might recall that um, God's people had been exiled to Babylon. God punished them for their disobedience and so they were exiled and yet God moved in the heart of a guy named Cyrus to send people back from Babylon to Israel. Ezra, well actually Zerubbabel came back first and then Ezra followed him and then Nehemiah came after Ezra. So what we're reading about here today is some years after Ezra, but it's all about the return of exiles to, um, to Israel, to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. So some uh, basic info here, background info on Nehemiah. We think maybe the author of the book is Ezra. Again, not sure. Some scholars think it might be Ezra. Written about 400 B.C., 400 years before the time of Christ. Theme of the book, God's protection of his people as well as the importance and centrality of worship, and some significant events in the 13 chapters of Nehemiah include Nehemiah's return from exile, as I just mentioned, uh, the building of the wall around the city of Jerusalem, some covenant renewal activities that go on and reforms that Nehemiah um, seeks to bring to the covenant community. But in any case, if, if you're discouraged today in your ministry, or as a Christian, and maybe thinking, I don't know if I want to do this any longer. Perhaps God can use this passage to bring some hope uh, to your spirit. So that's my prayer my hope. So let's stand now for the reading of God's Word. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, paperback Bibles under the chairs in front of you, you can find one. It's on page 227. Page 227. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, ESV. I'm just going to read the first 14 verses. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward... And that their breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said... They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, in your homes. Oh God in heaven, we ask for an outpouring of your spirit to open our eyes and soften our hearts, that we might behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, Discouragement. <laughs> a common experience of many who call themselves Christians and Christian leaders. We're just going to look at this in, in two ways today, discouragement that comes from outside the community and discouragement that comes from the inside. So first of all, let's consider discouragement from the outside. Here's uh, the context. Here's the, the the historical situation. Remember again that God had moved in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. Persia had come and Uh, Conquered Babylon, so Persia became um, uh, in control of Judah and Israel, and Cyrus decides that he's going to send God's people back home in order um, to worship there and to rebuild the temple. And again, years later, a guy named Nehemiah comes onto the scene, and so in the first few chapters, we read about Nehemiah, and, and what happens is he Uh, is, of course, aware of other exiles that had gone back home. He had stayed in this city called Susa. And um, Nehemiah gets word that the temple, or excuse me, the wall in Jerusalem, the wall that surrounds the temple and the city, had been broken down. And when he hears this, he's very distraught and he's troubled by this. The the wall is broken down. And so he goes to um, Artaxerxes, who is the king there at this time, of Persia. And he tells them how his heart is heavy about this and he asks for permission from the king to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild this wall. And the king looks on him with favor and, and grants him permission. And so Nehemiah leaves and he goes to Jerusalem and in chapter 2 we get this description of how he goes out at night and he's kind of checking things out to see how bad it is. And he sees the wall torn down and and yeah it's a bad situation. and Nehemiah is stirred up. He wants to do something about this. And so he gathers people together. Nehemiah is a man of extraordinary uh, leadership skills, apparently, a great visionary. He gets people to follow him. And so in chapter 3, we see all of these people gather together. And in this long chapter, we see different people doing different jobs in beginning to rebuild the wall. And so it's an exciting time, building the wall. Now, you know, as I say that phrase, that might bring something else to mind, building the wall. We've been hearing a lot about this in in the news and um, you know what our president wants to do and so I I don't want to cloud things up with that but it might bring to mind this question like what is the big deal about a wall? (laughs) Um, You know that's kind of a discussion going on in our country but we might ask now a wall I mean we don't have a wall around Yorktown, (laughs) we don't have a wall around Muncie, in fact I don't think there's any cities at least in our country that has a wall around it I don't think. So what was the big deal with a wall? Well, in this time, a wall was a, a big deal. It was. It was very important. Um, a wall was a sign of security and power to surrounding enemies. This is a, a time when warfare was much more common, a much more barbaric time. And so people living in a city would want a wall just to give them a sense of security. And a city without a wall would, would have been regarded as kind of, kind of strange, kind of weird, and a city with a broken down wall would be regarded with some measure of contempt. A broken down wall was a sign of, a sign of defeat. But a big, strong, beautiful wall, and some walls were aesthetically attractive. But they were a sign of pride for a city. They were a, a sign of a city that was civilized and progressive and moving ahead. And so a wall is a big deal, and so that's why Nehemiah was so concerned when he heard about the wall being broken down in Jerusalem. So he wants to go back, and he does, and progress is being made. But just as soon as progress gets made, there is opposition to the work. And you know, maybe you can identify with that. It, it seems that happens very often. You feel like it's three steps forward and two steps back very often. You know, you see some success. You see God at work. And it isn't too long before there's some kind of obstacle or opposition. And that's what Nehemiah finds. And we see it coming in two ways. First of all, he is opposed through very explicit verbal attacks. And we see this here in the first few verses of chapter 4. This guy named Sanballat... Hears that the wall is being built. Verse 1. This guy is a governor in Samaria, and he becomes enraged when he sees this happening, and he begins to jeer at the Jews, it says here at the end of verse 1. And he goes on. He kind of gets kind of sarcastic and pretty cutting here. And so he's, he's commenting, and he's saying these things in the presence of the brothers and of the army of Samaria. Verse 2 there. He wants to kind of stir them up. ...to share his animosity and and anger. So he's saying these things in their presence. And he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? These feeble, weak, ridiculous people. Um, Are they going to restore this for themselves? I mean, do they really think this is possible, is what he's saying? Will they sacrifice... I hear this is a people who offer sacrifices to their God. Is that what they're going to do? They're going to pull out a bunch of sacrifices on the altar and try to build the wall in some kind of magic, superstitious way through their sacrifices? Is that what we're going to see? Are they going to finish it up in a day? Yeah, maybe these people are so irrational that they think they're going to get this done in a day. They don't even know what they're up against. This is going to take them forever. Are they going to revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? This is a reference to the destruction of the temple years before. Remember we read about that last week. The temple is in a pile of rubble. And so he's saying are they going to take all these stones from the temple and the former wall that are all burned up and on the uh, uh, cusp of crumbling into dust, and they're going to take those and build a wall out of this? You can just hear the, the sarcasm. I suppose the modern day equivalent of this would be trash talking on a basketball court. As some of us are watching March Madness today um, or this weekend. Um, We know this is very common. Trash talking. We kind of laugh about it, but you know, trash talking does serve a purpose. One reason why some people engage in trash talking is because they're seeking to intimidate. They're seeking to demoralize. There can be an advantage. If you can get into a player's head through your ridicule, that can be an advantage. The idea is to discourage the opponent. And that's what sandballot is doing. Well, it's not just sandballot, It's his sidekick, I guess, Tobiah, verse 3, and he comes along. I kind of picture Tobiah as a little smaller, maybe with a little hat on and a smart aleck, little grin on his face. And Tobiah shows up and he goes, yeah, you know, so he's joining in. What they are building. Yeah, this wall. If a fox goes up and sits on top of it, it's going to crumble into pieces. <laughs> you know, if a cow got on top of a wall, you might expect it to crumble. But a fox, a fox relatively small, Light animal, but uh, another attempt at ridiculing and discouraging the people of God. Well, we should be used to this, actually. Um, Ridiculing the people of God is something that is fairly common throughout history. I mean, I think of a guy like Richard Dawkins, one of the very famous uh, scientists today, who has famously gone on record saying that the God of the Bible is a bloodthirsty, malevolent bully one of the greatest characters, or uh, I think not the greatest, uh, meanest characters in all of fiction, Richard Dawkins says, in his attempt to ridicule the people of God. Do you remember John Lennon from the Beatles back in the 60s said the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ and that Christianity would vanish and shrink, said it's going to disappear, I'll be proved right. He's using his words to just ridicule the people of God. And this has just gone on throughout history. Here's something we have to remember. This is Route 66, right? We're looking at this in the context of the whole story from Genesis to Revelation. Do you remember back in Genesis 3, verse 15, right after Adam and Eve fell in their rebellion against God, God went to the serpent and He said to the serpent that there's going to be enmity between your descendant serpent and between the descendant of the woman. There's going to be enmity. Enmity, that means conflict. There's going to be battle between your descendants and Eve's descendants. That is, throughout all history, there's going to be these two groups of people who are going to be opposed to each other. Those who are in the line of Jesus and those who are in the line of Satan. And that's what we're seeing here. It is continuing. The enmity, the hostility, and one of the most potent weapons that any enemy can use is words. You know, sometimes we hear this, Fairy tale, you know cliche sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me you know we've learned to say that but we know that's a lie we know that's not true words do hurt words do demoralize words do discourage and this is one of satan's primary goals is to discourage you in your christian walk and he's going to whisper things in your ear like god doesn't love you God doesn't care for you. Your sins are too serious for God to forgive. You can't be part of God's people. The gospel can't be true. God doesn't exist. That's the, the, the kind of thing that Satan will whisper in your ears seeking to demoralize and destroy your faith. And we're seeing a picture of it here in Nehemiah chapter 4. So, we have verbal attacks, but there's also physical attacks. At least the threat of physical attacks Um, We see in verse 7 that the work is progressing. And as a result of this, these leaders, Sanballat and Tobiah and some others, it says, become very angry at the end of verse 7. And so in verse 8, they plot together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. So it's like, well, we didn't discourage them and get them to quit with what we said, so let's step it up a little bit. And let's send in some armies and wage war, wage battle against these people. And there's something kind of interesting that's kind of hard to pull out. But um, if you look at where all these people are from, Sanballat from Samaria. Samaria would have been north of Jerusalem. Uh, We have in verse 7 the Arabs mentioned. The Arabs would have been south of Jerusalem. The Ammonites, they would have been to the east of Jerusalem. And the Ashdodites, they were west of Jerusalem. And so here's all these people surrounding Jerusalem, surrounding God's people, saying, we're going to come in and we're going to attack you and we're going to kill you. And this is what Nehemiah is hearing, surrounded. I mean, can you imagine how you would respond in that situation? These people expressing their intent, and there's no way out because they're north, south, east, and west. What what do you think Nehemiah must have felt like during this time? I mean, he seems like a pretty strong-willed person. (laughs) He seems like kind of a type A personality, maybe. So, um, you know, maybe maybe he didn't get too discouraged. I I think I would be discouraged (laughs) in these circumstances. And and maybe you would too. You kind of wonder if Nehemiah might have been asking himself, why did I do this? Why did I come here? I was pretty happy working under King Artaxerxes. Why did I come here? Was this a mistake? And maybe you've asked the same thing about whatever ministry situation you're in. Why, Why did I sign up for this? This is not what I expected. This is not as glorious as I thought it would be. Well, how does Nehemiah respond? We see two ways in particular that Nehemiah responds to the situation. And I think this is what kind of was used by God to go a long way in keeping Nehemiah from being discouraged to the point that he wanted to just quit and walk away. The first thing is this, he responds prayerfully. I mean, that's something that you see all throughout the book of Nehemiah, is Nehemiah is a man who is quick to pray. And I love the way there's that transition from verse 3 to verse 4, right after Tobiah is saying all of these, um, you know, taunting things in verse 3 about the fox that's going to break down the wall, and then verse 4, it's just this immediate transition. You know, Nehemiah doesn't take any time to stop and think about it, he doesn't take time to let his heart well up in bitterness and anger, he doesn't plot revenge, he just goes immediately to prayer, hear, O our God, this is his first response. This guy's ridiculing me. Oh God, hear me, hear me now, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from them from, their, uh, from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, that's a bit of a troubling prayer, isn't it? I mean, I I don't know how many of you pray that way. I I don't pray that way very often. And that's probably not the first kind of prayer that, that comes to mind. What is he praying for? He's saying, I pray for these people. I pray that they would be enslaved by another nation. God enslave them and don't forgive them of their sins. That's his prayer. Now, that, that's hard, isn't it, to understand? I mean, how, how do we justify that? <laughs> I mean, we're Christians. We're supposed to love our enemies. What, what, do, what do we say about this? How do we make sense of, of this? You know, this is kind of like what are called the imprecatory Psalms. There are a number of Psalms that offer this same kind of prayer a prayer for God to get vengeance on his enemies. I, I think what's important to notice here is that this is not Nehemiah pleading with God to vindicate himself that is Nehemiah. It's not Nehemiah praying for Nehemiah's vindication. This is Nehemiah praying for God's vindication. His primary concern, as you see at the very end of verse 5, they have provoked you, God, to anger. They have dishonored you. Nehemiah is so filled with zeal and passion for the glory of God that he is enraged when it is defied. And that is what is motivating This prayer of his. I think it is possible, friends, for us to do two things in our prayers. That is, that we can pray that God would help us to be merciful to our enemies, but also pray that God would judge his enemies. Because they're not always one and the same. We can pray for a heart of mercy toward our enemies, the people who have made our lives hard for whatever reason, but also pray. God will bring judgment upon his enemies because that's what's going to happen one day right when Jesus comes again and all of his enemies will be destroyed this is how J.I. Packer says that when Christians get to heaven they will forever rejoice not only in the mercies by which God has glorified himself in their own lives but also in the judgments by which he vindicates himself against those who defy him that will be something that we'll be doing in in heaven is rejoicing in God's judgment. And this is a prayer by Nehemiah for that to happen. So there's a prayerful response by Nehemiah, but there's also a proactive response. Look at verse 9. There's another mention of Nehemiah's prayer. We prayed to our God, and we went home and let God do His work. Is that what it says? No. We prayed to, go, to our God And we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. You know, we prayed and then we were proactive. We prayed and then we did something about it. Being prayerful is not an excuse to be passive. Just because we ask God to do something doesn't mean that we can then just sit back and just watch Him work. No, we are responsible individuals who must obey and put forth effort in serving God sharing our faith etc and that's what nehemiah does here he prays but then he's proactive sets up a guard um, to protect the city from the enemy so discouragement from the outside but we also have discouragement in this text that comes from the inside we would expect discouragement maybe to come from the outside outside the church in the world coming in. We would expect that, but sometimes what stings the most is the discouragement that comes from the inside, right? The discouraging things that we hear inside the church, the, the grumbling and the cynicism and critical comments, relational conflict, people that struggle to get along with one another, budget problems, seeing little change in people, standing up for what's right and not being appreciated, being overlooked, working behind the scenes and not being thanked or noticed, sharing your faith and praying for people and it seems unfruitful, it doesn't seem like anything is happening, and it gets discouraging and sometimes we ask ourselves, do I want to keep doing this? Is there a better way for me to be spending my time? Well, here's what happens in the story. The people are getting discouraged. They're getting discouraged about the work. First of all, verse 10. And Judah was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We'll not be able to rebuild the wall. We can't do it. The work is too hard. It's overwhelming. It's, it's fruitless. We, we can't do this. We can't plant churches. It's too hard takes too much money, takes too much time. It's too painful to see people go out. We can't do that. We can't start new ministries. There aren't enough people. You know, you, there's just this discouragement, this this negativity. We can't do it. But there's also then this discouragement regarding the enemy because in verse um, 11, it says, our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So Apparently word is getting out that the enemy might attack at night when they're not even watching. And the intent of their attack, again, notice that, kill them in verse 11. Kill them. People are coming to kill them and they're going to come when they don't expect it. And so people in the towns, the outlying towns where the Jews had been resettling, mothers and fathers and friends and wives, are, are beginning to get scared. And they're fearful about what's going to happen. And so they say... Um, in verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them, they came from all directions and they said to us ten times, you must return to us, you must come home, you must come back, this is too dangerous. They said it ten times. It's, I don't know if they said it literally ten times, it's almost like Nehemiah's Maya's way of just saying, it. they just keep saying it over and over again. They say it ten times that we've got to come back and it's too dangerous and there's discouragement setting in. But then look at verse 13. How does Nehemiah respond? It's really amazing. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open spaces, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their... It's just like he just keeps going on with the work. They tell us to come back. They tell us to quit. And we're going to get back to work. We're not giving up. We're going to keep building this wall <laughs> because that's what God called us to do. I wonder what got into Nehemiah that helped him to see this. I mean, one thing for sure that Nehemiah must have realized and that we all have to realize, it's the simplest thing to say, but I'm going to even put it up on the screen. Ministry is hard work. It's just ministry is hard. There was never a promise that ministry was going to be easy. That passage does not exist in the Scriptures. Being involved in ministry is a little bit more like being on a battleground than a playground. Ministry that costs you nothing, friends, is worth pretty much what it costs. Worship that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Ministry is difficult. It's a challenge. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You know, you're having a hard time in your ministry, you're feeling discouraged, you've got a lot of opposition and difficulty. What's, what's strange about that? That's what Peter is saying. Yeah, and? Yeah, that, that's, that's what this is like. <laughs> that's what we sign up for. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed so that you may be overjoyed. This is for a test in your own life. That This is something that I would encourage you to remember, and I preach to myself as well as I preach to you today, that in your ministry role, remember, whatever it is, as you're discouraged, remember, friends, that you are not just a vehicle of grace for others. In the midst of this, you are a recipient of God's grace. That it's not just God's work through you to others it's God doing a work in you in the midst of your ministry that while God is certainly doing something in you to bless others really the point here is not your honor but God's honor as he works in you God is reaching others through you but in your case what's more important is that he's reaching you he's reaching you I've often said, and Pastor Brian and I have had this conversation many times, and we both agree, we feel like the things that God has done in our lives as pastors are, are extraordinary. I mean, there are just things that God has taught me as a result of being a pastor that I would not have learned any other way. I've been humbled in extraordinary ways as, as a pastor. <laughs> That's a good thing. The things I've learned and come to know in ministry have been greater than things I would learn any other way. Hasn't been easy, but I'm thankful for it. Horatius Bonar says this, the road to the kingdom is not so pleasant and comfortable and easy and flowery as many dream. It's not a bright sunny avenue of palms. It's not paved with triumph, though it is to end in victory. The termination, the end, is glory, honor, and immortality. But on the way, there is the thorn in the flesh the sackcloth, and the cross. That's what we've signed up for because we have a Savior who went to a cross for us to save us and to redeem us. And so now we're called to carry our cross for Him. So what what do we do in response to this? Well, prayer, first of all. I mean, it's a very frequent theme. Again, pray. If you're discouraged in ministry right now, let me mention it again. Our prayer meeting, Wednesday night at 630. Do you need someone to pray for you? Are you discouraged? Are you at the end of your rope? We're sitting right here. We're waiting. Come on in and let us pray for you. And commit yourself to prayer yourself. But also there's one last thing that Nehemiah does here, and that is that he fixes his eyes on the greatness of God. And we see that at the very end, verse 14 He looks, and he arose, and he said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of these people, because remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember, we have a great and awesome God, so get back to fighting for your brothers, sons, daughters, wives, and your homes. Fix your eyes on the greatness of God, the faithfulness of God, the love of God, the omnipotence of God, the wisdom of God, the eternality of God of God, the kindness of God, the covenantal faithfulness of God. Fix your eyes on that. Fix your eyes on the promises of God. You know, God has said your labor for him is not in vain. It's never in vain. In due season, the word says, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. And the day is coming when you stand before Jesus face to face and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Fix your eyes on these things. It's never promised that ministry will be easy, but it is promised that it will be worth it. Your service to the church and to Jesus will be worth it. So, how does this fit in the whole story as I conclude here? How does this story of Nehemiah fit within the broad storyline, Genesis to Revelation? Well, the people are returning uh, there's high expectations, right? There's a lot of excitement. Hey, we're going back to our homeland. We're going to build the temple. We're going to build the wall. Um, it's a new era. And they're excited and looking forward. Maybe this is the, the, you know, the key to living obediently before God and to receiving His blessings. You know what? By the end of the book of Nehemiah in chapter 13, Nehemiah is so frustrated with the people. They neglect the temple, they break the Sabbath. They're intermarrying with people of other religious faiths and Nehemiah goes out and he starts beating them <laughs> and tearing out their hair. You can look it up, chapter 13, verse 25. <laughs> tearing out their hair. He's, he's so frustrated that the people have come back and it's the exact same thing. They're just as, disobedience as always, disobedient as they've always been. Nothing's changed. Apparently, these people don't necessarily need a new wall and a new temple as much as they need new hearts. That's what they need. They need new hearts. And when Jesus comes 500 years later to live for them and to die for them and to send his Holy Spirit to cause them to be born again, finally we see the fulfillment of God's covenantal promises. People with a new heart who trust in what Jesus has done and love him and serve him, and persevere to the end by his grace. That's the offer to all of you who would turn and trust in this Jesus that you too might receive a new heart. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for its richness and for all that it has to say to us. Lord, help us to be people who love it, believe it. We thank you so much for your faithfulness to all your promises. Most of all, your promise to send your son to die and live for us.